Hey there, this is Mark Scarborough, and this is the podcast Walking with Dante, a podcast that is clear up into Purgatorio. We're at Canto 10, lines 28 through 45. As you know, I guess well know, we are very slowly walking through Dante's masterwork comedy because this complicated poem deserves our full attention, and it is getting more complicated. We have arrived at the first official cornice or terrace in Purgatory on the Great Mountain of Purgatory. We've come through the gate, and I've seen nine cantos where the people waiting to get through the gate, but we finally got through it, and now we're on a deserted cornice, or is it? Well, now we'll find out. We're at lines 28 through 55 of Canto 10 of Purgatorio. This is my English translation. You can find it on my website, markscarbo.com or walkingwithdante.com. You'd almost think I had that memorized by this point when you say it so much. <laughs> you can print it off there, make notes, read along, or drop a comment about this episode because things are about to get a tad complicated. So let's look at it. We'd hardly set our feet on the cornice when I realized the encircling embankment was so steep it was impossible to climb. It was made out of white marble and embellished with such carvings. Not only Polycletus, but nature herself would have been put to scorn there. The angel who came to earth with the proclamation of peace tearfully lamented for so many years the very decree that opened heaven itself after the long prohibition appeared in the carving before us with such veracity and with such a gentle demeanor that it didn't seem in the least like a figure that could keep silent. You'd have sworn he was saying Ave, since she too was pictured there, she who turned the key to open the way to the love on high. What's more, her features were clearly imprinted with Eche Anchila Dei. You'd have thought the whole thing was stamped into wax. Okay, there's the passage. We're going to have to talk through a lot about art in this passage because Dante is demanding it of us. Let me say that there are a couple of strange little bits here. One is Polycletus, as he's now called in modern English. His name in Greek is Polukletos, and I much prefer Polukletos, but um, <laughs> Polycletus it is in modern transcriptions of ancient Greek. I should also say that I did pronounce the Latin etch Anchila Dei in medieval Italian pronunciation, not classical Latin pronunciation, because that's probably how Dante would have said it. But boy, is that ever a guess on my part. Okay, without any further ado, let's just get to the passage. So let's start at that bit about said Polycletus or Polucletos. Instead of talking about their feet on the cornice, I want to skip down three lines and start there. The embankment that is so steep is made out of white marble. We should think about the grand and gorgeous marble that comes from Italy. And it's embellished with carvings. It's intaglio, or as we say sometimes in English, intaglio. That is, it's got a relief carving into it or out of it. The figures may be standing a bit out of it, or they may be more flattened against it. It's really difficult to know exactly which form of intaglio 
Dante is speaking about, but nonetheless, we should see this as a carved relief marble. And Dante mentions this famed Polycletus, or Polycletos, this Greek sculpture. He's a Greek sculpture in the 5th century BCE. Nothing actually survives that Polycletos made, though we may have some Roman copies. Does Dante know that? Does he know that things attributed to this uh, Polycletus might in fact only be Roman copies? Don't know. And in fact, can't say. Uh, It could be that Dante knows that what he's looking at is copies. It could be that Dante is seeing works that he's attributing or has seen or has heard about works that are attributed to allegedly one of the greatest sculptors of the classical Greek age. We should remember that in Inferno, in Canto 11, we had an initial formulation of a theory of art. I know, goes long back, but remember they're standing there and, well, sitting, actually, there in Canto 11, and Virgil wants Dante to kind of get used to the stink of the lower parts of hell. And so Virgil takes Canto 11 to map out what's ahead of them. In this mapping out, we get into this theory of art. That is, nature is the child of God, and art is the child of nature, or art is God's grandchild. And this gets back to the usurers who are actually abusing art. And we talked about creating something out of nothing or thinking you're doing that when you're charging interest on loans. We should go back to that whole idea that art is the child of nature because it's going to play out in this passage. Here we have a natural formation, the white marble embankment, and not only would one of the greatest classical sculptors, but also nature herself, who is the parent of art, would have been put to scorn by the intaglio here. So what is here? This is the first of three images that are going to be in the marble, and you know that from our read-through. But let's pretend for a minute, let's wipe the slate clean and pretend for a minute that you don't know that. So it starts, the angel who came to earth with the proclamation of peace tearfully lamented for so many years, that is, this proclamation of peace had been cried over, wanted, wanted so badly people cried about it. The very decree that opened heaven itself after the long prohibition, we'll talk about that in just a second, appeared in the carving before us with such veracity and with such a gentle demeanor that it didn't seem in the least like a figure that could keep silent. What we have here is clearly a carving of the Annunciation in which the angel appears before Mary and announces that she is going to give birth to the Savior. But what I find interesting here are those three lines, the angel who came to earth, tearfully lamented the decree after the long prohibition, We don't actually know what that's talking about until we find out that we're now being told what the inscription is. If we were just reading this and just clipping along a line at a time, there's a real disconnect between line 33 and line 34. Nobody stops and says, okay, let me explain to you what one of the carvings was. Instead, we have to pick that up. We have to figure it out. And I think that's a very 
interesting move on Dante's part, not to set it up, but to let it kind of happen in front of us before he explains that this is part of the relief. And we should note that this scene of the Annunciation of the Angel to Mary of the Birth of the Savior is fully paraphrastic. No one is named. In this scene, Mary herself, the virgin, is simply referred to as she. She was pictured there. She who turned the key to open the way to the love on high. What's more, her features were so clearly imprinted with Echi Anchila Dei, that is, behold the handmaid of God. We'll talk more about that in a minute. That you'd have thought the whole thing was stamped in wax. Now, what Christian wouldn't know this scene. I Most Christians know the Ave and the handmaid of God scene. It's very common in Christian imagery and in Christian storytelling, but it's still given here paraphrastically, which leads us to know that in this initial relief, despite all we're going to say about art, there is a little gap or a little hole in the narrative. And that little gap or the little hole is filling in who these figures are. Again, in Dante's day, there'd be no doubt about what scene this is. But you do kind of have to go, oh, right. Oh, I know who this is. In the same way that from line 34 through 36, you have to say, oh, right. Oh, oh, right. He's describing the carving. Why is this? Well, uh, I guess you could say there's a kind of self-congratulatory response on the part of a Christian reader and on the part of the pilgrim. Like, oh, right, I get that. I know that. Yeah, I had a friend the other day who said to me that um, he had read Middlemarch with me in one of the literary classes I teach. He saw a reference to Dorothea. I think it was in The New Yorker. And he said, oh, I had to pat myself on the back because I know who that is because I read Middlemarch. Well, <laughs> it's nice to know that literary studies let you pat yourself on the back. But that, that's the idea here, right? That no, I wanted self-congratulations may be too strong, but, you know, you pat yourself on the back. I, I know who this is. Or is this a bit of strategic narrative theory here? What I mean by that is the opening 27 lines of the Kanto, which we were in in the last episode, were so desolate, so vacant, the void and all of that. We talked about that endlessly. Is the void continued a little into this in that we're not fully given who these figures are? We have to figure them out in our own mind as we do it. It's often interesting to watch that happen. Bruce and I just watched a movie the other night. uh, It came out earlier in 2023 called Sharper, and it's it's kind of a brilliant movie. You should watch it. It really flew under the radar. It's a a very, very twisty, tricksy movie. One of the things that's interesting is as the tricks and twists keep happening in the plot, it's best if you don't know anything about it before you see it. As the twists and tricks keep happening in the plot, you kind of feel your whole brain reset because the plot is also not told uh, linearly. It's not told from the past to the present to maybe an imagination of the future. Instead, it keeps backing up and then going forward and back. So you keep having to reassess what you know. And you can kind of feel your brain go click each time the reassessment gets made. Well, that's kind of like this, right? You can feel it click into place when you understand who these figures are. So let's talk for just a second about the figures here in the relief. Of course, there's the angel, and he's saying Ave. And you should know that there was a long-standing medieval joke. No, that's too far to go. Long-standing medieval trope about Ave, hail, is the reverse of Eva or Eva, Eve. 
in the garden. And many medieval commentators comment that when the angel comes forward and says to Mary, Ave, Hail Mary, full of grace, Ave, that you can see Eve in the backwards of Ave, Epha. And so we get this, that there is a second chance, a second woman after the fall, not Eve, but now Mary. And we should say that that's kind of filled out in that passage because we had that line at 36, the decree that opened heaven itself after the long prohibition. What's the prohibition? That's the fall of Adam and Eve. Heaven has been closed all these years until the Annunciation. The angel comes and announces to Mary, Ave. And we get this little bit of Eve in the background here. And then Mary is said to turn the key to open the way to the love on high. So there's a key in Mary's hand. Remember the two keys that Jesus gave to Peter are now sitting with that angel before the gate of purgatory. And we just had those two keys. And now we have a key in the hand of a woman. That's clearly significant for Dante. Clearly the keys that Jesus gave Peter that sit in the angel's hands are of, what do we want to say, lesser value? That that seems too harsh, doesn't it? But they're a, a tool, a mechanism to getting into purgatory. But Mary's key is the key to opening the entire gate of heaven itself. Not just the gate of purgatory, but to the ultimate fount of love, God, as we will discover over the course of comedy. This Mary is described as saying, as if she were saying in the carving, it's so realistic, Echi Anchila Dei, behold the handmaid of God. You should just know this is Anchila Dei is more than you might think handmaid of God. Not only was this the name given to the Virgin Mary in the Middle Ages, but for centuries, this had been the Latin inscription on Christian women's tombs. That is, uh, the handmaid of God. You know, on your tomb, it says, <laughs> I don't know, whatever your name is, Louisa Pound, the handmaid of God. This is a long-standing tradition. It's coming to an end in Dante's day because Anchila Dei is becoming so associated with the Virgin. But Dante would probably know this long-standing tradition of this is the word written on Christian women's tombs as kind of their epitaph. If that's so, then death is sitting underneath this passage, which brings us back to Adam, which brings us back to Eve, which brings us back to the fall, right? It's all wrapping slowly up in itself, which makes the passage incredibly complicated. And then more so when we start to talk about what can we say about art based on this first carving in the brilliantly white marble of Mount Purgatory. We're going to be talking so much about art in the episodes... (laughs) And good grief, all the way up through the last cornice of purgatory itself. So what can we say here that it's proclaiming about art? Just if we take this first example, what theory of art could we pull away from it? It's an oft-told tale that Dante must favor mimetic art, that is, realistic art. In fact, the realer the better, because this carving is so good that you could almost imagine or perhaps you can actually hear the angel say Ave and you can hear Mary say Eche Anchila Dei. I mean it's just so realistic and the more so the better and apparently this art which must have been carved by God here 
is the ultimate in realistic or mimetic art. Okay, every critic says that, but let's push beyond that for a minute and talk about what else we can see here. First off, this is pretty spare stuff. I mean, we've got the angel, we've got the marble, we've got Mary, but we don't have a lot of the other set trappings of the Annunciation. Usually in medieval representations of the Annunciation, we get the light coming in the window, we get the room that Mary's in. Surely you've seen medieval paintings or manuscript illuminations that show this. The angels usually got gorgeous wings, gorgeous colored wings. Mary's usually holding a flower, often a lily, sometimes a rose. I mean, it's all sitting there as part of the stage set of the Annunciation in the Middle Ages, but you'll notice that it's stripped bare here. There's something rather spare about this scene. This will not hold for subsequent scenes, but the first carving on Mount Purgatory has a spareness about it, an openness. And perhaps this goes back to our periphrastic phrasing. Perhaps this goes back to the early desolation of the cornice itself, a kind of spare desert-like quality about it. We should also notice that Dante seems to very much favor didactic art, that is, art with a moral purpose or a moral texture, art that either uplifts the viewer or the reader, and we assume that this extends out to even the kind of art Dante's creating, or art that somehow teaches the reader a lesson. Surely that is the case with comedy, or Dante wants it to be the case with comedy. We will see by the end of comedy whether Dante actually pulls that off, but that's another matter entirely. But let's again push beyond all of that and even push deeper into this concept of mimetic or realistic art. You'll notice that the best art, if we take this as our first example, builds off a previous foundation. This is art that represents something already known, the Annunciation by the angel to the Virgin Mary of the birth of the Savior. And if you think about it, that's what Dante's doing. That's what he's doing with Virgil, Ovid, Aquinas, Statius, the New Testament, apocalyptic visions of the afterlife, both canonical found in the prophets of both the Old and New Testament, and non-canonical representations from patristic sources of St. Peter's vision and St. Paul's vision of the afterlife. Dante is, in other words, not building something new. He's building on what was, and this art shows us that this is central to Dante's concept of art. And may I say that studies, neurological studies, prove, in fact, that this is the case. When people are presented with blank pieces of paper, they come up with fewer and more inferior ideas than when they are presented with a paper and a prompt. For example, when I say to you, tell me something green, the things that come to your mind, maybe leaves, trees, grass, 
are less clear than when I say, tell me something green in New York City or tell me something green in Paris. And then suddenly you might think of the green glowing radium in Marie Curie's test tube. You may think of beautiful green marbles. You may think of the gorgeous greens in Impressionist painting. You may think of those beautiful greens that surround all kinds of vaults in the marble and in the frescoes, let's say, even out into Italy. In other words, you might think more specifically about greens rather than kind of generalized green. And so we can say that creativity arises from prompts or, to put it in Dante's terms, creativity, the best creativity, arises from something that has come before or is a fusion or a further illumination of something that that has come before. I'm thinking of the talking heads and I'm thinking of David Byrne and that great breakout 1979 album, Fear of Music. That breakout album was all about Byrne experiencing Afropop. And once he discovered Afropop, he fused Afropop with the post-funk punk scene. And by kind of taking this late punk music and fusing it with Afropop, we got this unbelievably original album. Is it something new? No, actually. It's built off Nigerian folk rhythms. It's built off punk. But by combining and creating new things, we actually get something new. And we would say that this represents Dante's theory of art. And I would tell you, it represents how humans create. Humans don't create ex nihilo. They create from something before. They have to forgive me, either imagine a being who can create ex nihilo or they have to understand that a being who can create ex nihilo has been revealed to them because we do not create out of nothing. Before I get to the next section of this podcast, can I say that it would be great if you could help me out? It would be great if you could write a review or even just rate this podcast no matter what language or platform you are finding this podcast on. It helps me in the analytics. I realize that's not your problem. It's mine. But, you know, we're all fighting this game against algorithms. And so I could use some support there and I would much appreciate it. If you want to go further, you can help me with licensing, royalty fees, streaming fees, hosting fees. All these fees are quite (laughs) overwhelming at times when they come due about every three months. And I need a little help there. Of course, I'll do this on my own. Of course, this is a passion project. But if you'd like to help out, I most appreciate it. There's a PayPal link both on my website, markscarbro.com or walkingwithdante.com. And there's a PayPal link right in the player for this podcast. You can find it there. It'll click you out to PayPal and donate whatever you have to give. That would really help me along to keep this thing afloat. This thing is approaching near unto 400 episodes. But there's a problem here, and it's one that Dante surely does not recognize. And here's the problem. Okay, so this bit of the Annunciation is stuck into this canto, and part of it is to prove the veracity of the journey. Now that Dante is walking up purgatory, and we've talked about this endlessly, the fiction of the fiction is that it's not a fiction. So Dante really did this, and this really happened to him. And part of the way you know this is because these stories which you know of the Annunciation, were you a good medieval Christian, these stories which you know are represented here. Okay, you know, I'm a fine and dandy, except there's a problem. When you stick the story here from the Bible into the 
fictional nonfiction of Dante's fictional nonfiction, you call into question the veracity of the biblical story. This is not anything that Dante would consider. We, standing way back here in postmodernism, can now see it. We can see that, in fact, what has happened is that there is a truth, the truth of the Annunciation, as Dante would see it, a historical truth that has been woven into this completely fictional journey, which is uh, presenting itself as if it were a completely realistic, realized, and remembered journey. But by the time we put the historical node into this, we somehow alter the historicity of that node. This is <laughs> so connected to my dissertation from so many years ago in which I wrote a lot about historical romance and the problem of putting historical figures into romance fiction, into not romance as in bodice rippers, but romance is in the 19th century idea of a heightened imaginative experience. And once you, oh, I don't know, pull out Lincoln and shove him into a different kind of fiction, you fictionalize Lincoln and you fray the edges of his historicity. I only can call you out to George Saunders' fabulous novel, Lincoln and the Bardo, which phrase the historical edges of Lincoln in order to create the tale. Well, the same thing happens here. Now, does Dante know this again? Let me just reiterate. No, this is distinctly a postmodern stance of mine that I can see that once you sow alleged history into fiction, you compromise the claims of the historical event itself because the fiction overrides the fiction of the journey up Mount Purgatory, overrides the fiction of the revealed truth. What Dante does know is that art has to be super realistic, so realistic, the best art, that you can actually see it happening. You can even imagine it. That really good art fires the imagination of the viewer or the reader so that you fill in the details, as I just did, and furthermore, real art is built on what comes before, is an embellishment, an adornment of what is already known. In other words, art is built on an infinite regress. There's no beginning to this because surely even the Iliad and the Odyssey, which Dante didn't know, are built off other older stories before them. Art is an infinite regress in which humans reassemble that which is known to create what we call something new. Finally, I want to go back to the opening three lines. We'd hardly set our feet on the corners when I realized the encircling embankment was so steep it was impossible to climb. And this is just a nice point I want to make. So what do you do with heights that cannot be climbed? What do you do with that which cannot be known, that which cannot be climbed? You embellish it with art. Of course, that's what art does. It adheres to that which is unclimbable, that which is unknowable. Art takes the absolute, unbelievably depressing <laughs> fact of the unclimbability of meaning, and it says, you know what? I'm going to embellish it. This works all the way from Virginia Woolf to George Eliot to, I don't know, all the way back to Moliere and to Shakespeare, all the way back to Dante. You take that which can escape meaning and ultimately defies meaning and you make it beautiful. You embellish it. You carve it. You don't stand there and go, God, the world is meaningless. No, in fact, you make it gorgeous. This is, this is the truth when you look up at the stars, right? 
that <laughs> to, to quote Neil deGrasse Tyson, the universe has no obligation to explain itself to you, right? I mean, it is a scary space out there full of radiation that'll kill you, full of voids that'll kill you. The universe is actually intent on your destruction, <laughs> to be quite blunt. Yet when you look up at the stars, do you see your destruction? No, you do not. I don't. I see how gorgeous it is. Ah, guy, take the dog out every night now and look up at Orion, which is up in the northern hemisphere. If you don't know it, Betelgeuse, the star that forms one of the arms of Orion, has gone red giant in the last year. It now has changed and become a red giant. And when you look at Orion, you can see Betelgeuse in a faint red glow. This happened in our lifetime. It's going to go supernova sometime between tonight and about 100,000 years from now. So at any moment, the thing's going to go supernova. And when it does, it will be as bright as a half moon in the sky. But for now, for about three months, it'll be that bright. But for now, it's red. And I look up at it, and every night I stand out there with my dog, and I'm just dumbfounded that I got to see Betelgeuse go red. Do I look up there and think of my annihilation in the face of space? No, I don't. I look up there and see something beautiful. That's what you do with the unscalable wall. You embellish it. Let's read this crazy passage one more time. Purgatorio, Canto 10, lines 28 through 45. We'd hardly set our feet on the cornice when I realized the encircling embankment was so steep it was impossible to climb. It was made out of white marble and embellished with such carvings, not only polyclitus, but Nature herself would have been put to scorn there. The angel who came to earth with the proclamation of peace tearfully lamented for so many years. The very decree that opened heaven itself after the long prohibition appeared in the carving before us with such veracity and with such a gentle demeanor that it didn't seem in the least like a figure that could keep silent. You'd have sworn he was saying Ave, since she too was pictured there, she who turned the key to open the way to the love on high. What's more, her features were clearly imprinted with Ecce Ancilla Dei. You'd have thought the whole thing was stamped in wax. How can you not love this crazy idea of the highest of human ideals, art, is found in the place of purgation. Purgatory is ultimately a grand theory of art, and we're just at the start. So there is so much more to go. It's going to get better and better and crazier and crazier and more and more elliptical, and Dante's going to fall into some pits, and we're not going to be able to help him because there are postmodern pits. We had one here, but he doesn't know about this one. He's going to realize some of the ones ahead of us, but... Anyway, to get to all those places, you got to subscribe to this podcast and you got to keep walking with me because honestly, this is just fascinating stuff. So ahead of its time, so part of its moment, and so very daunting. I'm Mark Scarborough, and I'll see you on the walk ahead.